Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is UXK. 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 I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo. Hello, welcome to UX Cake. In this episode, I'm joined by two guests, Philip Hunter of Pulse Labs and Cassie Wallander of Invio. And we're talking about the challenges and the benefits of being in UX at a startup and the techniques that we have found helpful in being more effective in this kind of startup environment. This week's episode was a live recording event in Seattle. It's the second one we've done now, and it was lots of fun. I hope you can join us for the next one. It does sound a little bit different than our normal recording. Also, Philip and Cassie will be introducing themselves and their background in the episode, which is a little different than our normal format. I want to quickly give a shout out to the sponsors of the event, Spruce Up and Create 33. Spruce Up is a personal styling and shopping service for your home. So if you're looking for that perfect rug or sofa, or you just want to freshen up the look of a room, you can chat online with a Spruce Up home stylist who identifies what your unique style and needs are, and then they do the shopping for you so you can get on with your life. The $25 styling fee is credited towards your purchase, so it's basically free. Check it out for yourself at GetSpruceUp.com, where you can start with a fun, free style quiz. Full disclosure, SpruceUp is also the startup where I work as head of UX and product. And also thanks to our co-sponsor, Create33, which is a new space in downtown Seattle. Create33 is an entrepreneurial center for tech startups who are looking for resources and support to build their business. So it's more than a co-working space. They offer support and resources that are crucial to the success of startups. Tonight, we have a great conversation with Cassie Wallander, who's co-founder and CPO, which stands for Chief Product Officer, for those of you who don't know, at NVO, and Philip Hunter, who's the VP of Product at Pulse Labs, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hello. So my name is Cassie Wallander, as mentioned. I tweet a lot about UX and Star Wars. So if you want to follow me, I'm at Cassie on Twitter. And I've been doing user experience design by some other name since I was 16. And I hate to tell you this, but I'm 36 almost. So 20 years, really. And (laughs) stop laughing. (laughs) Because she's older than either of us. (laughs) I mean, I've just been doing it for 20 years. I just did the math now. But a little brief background on me. I started out just doing web design and found it as a way to pay my way through college. And I was really delightfully surprised by how much I loved it and how fun it was. And then I ended up joining a series of wonderful startups doing user experience design and product management. And I got completely addicted to startups and completely addicted to user experience design and really caring about making sure we were building something people loved. Today, I am co-founder at Invio, which is a web-based platform for optimizing the data quality for clinical trials. So not only do I get to work on great product experience, but I get to work on something that 
could potentially impact all of our healthcare options. And that gets me really excited on Monday mornings to come into work. But enough about me. How about you? So Cassie and I started doing UX, I guess, about the same time. The difference is I was four when I started. (laughs) Only 24 now. (laughs) So, which is obvious, I'm sure. So seriously, though, I started in UX about 20-something years ago as well, and I'm not 36. But I've done a lot of different work also. I got started in the good old touchstone interactive voice response systems, the phone trees, the Mm -hmm. things that everybody hates when they call their bank or insurance company or whatever, an industry which knew nothing about UX at the time. And so I learned about it myself and helped introduce it, which led to starting a career in voice recognition, which is where a lot of those systems have gone since then. But along the way, I started doing designing for tools, enterprise tools, developer tools specifically. So I spent some time at AWS a few years ago, helping them understand what design systems were and how they needed to be applied at at, uh, scale. And then Along the way, I did a lot of different work in speech recognition, which led me to Alexa a couple of years ago, uh, as might be obvious, and where I headed up the uh, UX team that was focused on developer tools for building Alexa skills, and which is incidentally where I met my wonderful partner in life. And so she's here tonight with me to support me. And then back in the spring, well, actually, let me rewind a little bit more. Last summer, I was a mentor for UX accelerator companies, Alexa accelerator companies, for the first of those programs and met the co-founders of Pulse Labs, which is a Madrona-funded company. And Jaren was a part of Techstars at that time. So she and I got to know each other and developed a relationship with those guys over the next six or eight months. And then in the springtime, decided that it would be cool to join them. I think my fourth startup throughout my career, so like Lee had that startup bug off and on, but also spent a lot of time in larger companies Pulse Labs, we do UX assessments for speech recognition applications. So Alexa Skills or uh, Google Actions, we were funded both by Amazon and Google as well as Madrona. And um, it's a really, really exciting time to be in voice recognition for a lot of different reasons. And this angle in particular is something I'm really enthusiastic about it because it's about assessing user experience at scale in a very new, still maturing medium. Awesome. Okay. I should mention this is my third startup. So <laughs> some context. Yeah. So I very, you know, some similar themes. I started over 20 years ago and I also worked my way through college doing design and got into media design was called multimedia back then. CD-ROMs, probably some of you were born. Bromedia. <laughs> and then got into software design. So this, I have worked at large companies. I have worked, this is my third startup also, but I will say this is the first early stage, meaning I don't know how familiar you all are with startups, but we are in our pre-seed funding right now. The last startup I was at was in a series A, had already gotten their series A. The one before that had gone through maybe A and B and was much larger, maybe 40 people. So very different experiences. And I could tell that this is a very popular subject because we got quite a lot of people signed up to come tonight. And so because it's such a big topic, I did, I sent out a survey to our event attendees so we could focus it somewhat. 
Thank you for those who filled it out. So I'm just going to tell you what we hope to cover tonight. Well, hopefully we'll get to all of it. General challenges, which are sort of covered in the other things that we're going to be talking about, which is getting user research done. There's all sorts of special issues with that in a startup. Measuring effectiveness of your UX efforts. I mean, that's always a challenge, but particularly in startups. Being a design team of one and designing all the things. Establishing a process for UX. Again, that's an issue in a lot of places, but at a startup in particular, it has its own sort of nuances. And transitioning into the startup world. So, and sort of how does working at a startup affect one's career? So we'll get to that at the very end. I thought it would be really interesting to start with just listing maybe your top couple, two or three challenges that you face at it being at a startup and why you do it. So I'll try to limit it to five. <laughs> or three. Or three. <laughs> Maybe we could do three. Let's do three. So these are no particular order, but things that come to mind directly are, you know, you're often the only designer and design in a silo is almost always terra bad. <laughs> so that is a challenge. You often don't even know who users are yet or have any customers to talk to. And if you do have customers to talk to, you might be working with really limited resources, not just time, but also cash runway. So you may not have a budget to fly out to them if they're on the East Coast and spend a lot of time in person. So those are three that kind of come to mind immediately. And then the second half of the question was, why do you love to do it anyway? <laughs> I really truly believe that if you're doing user experience in a startup, you have the opportunity to get past all those things and more. And anytime you say the word challenge, I think opportunity. Like that's where you're going to grow is getting outside your comfort zone. And that's where you're going to find what you love the most. And that's where you're going to be given any responsibility you step up to the plate for because everyone's terribly maxed out. And so if you raise your hand and say, I'll do it. I may not know how to do it yet, but I will figure it out be quickly given the reins and allowed to own that problem. So if you're a problem solver, startups are a great home. Yeah, especially if you enjoy the kinds of problems that have very little definition to them. So Cassie made a great point of saying, sometimes you don't know who your customers are. You might have an idea of what your market is or who you would like to be your customer, but it's not like you've got a list of email addresses and contacts to go out and talk to them. Or in our case, you might have an early customer, but they are so unique that you know that getting all of the input from them is going to potentially sway everything in a direction that might be hard to deal with later. And so, of course, you want to pay attention to the needs and their desires, but at the same time, you have to be actively thinking that it might not be the right thing to do. But anyway, I'm not answering the question. Although, So I agree with all of Cassie's. So let me try to add, I guess one thing along those lines is a lot of times there's only a vague idea of the product. And so when you come into a startup, you don't necessarily, someone's not handing you a charter that says, we are solving this problem and we want to solve it this way. And here are your constraints and here are the objectives you have to be part of discovering all that and the discussions and the inquiry and the research to do that. So that's one challenge is just sort of dealing with this incredible amount of ambiguity. Mm -hmm. 
Secondly is getting at the idea of your job. So you may, if you've had a number of UX jobs, you might be fairly familiar with what you think of as the UX job description, but it gets really super messy in a startup. And not just because, like Cassie was saying, there's other jobs that might need to be done and you might be interested in doing them and you can help. But just the whole, the idea of what a UX designer is, is not necessarily the same in a startup as it is in a well-defined UX team where there are multiple roles and, and things like that. And so sort of, you know, taking a step back and saying, what do I think my job is here is, can be a challenge. Thirdly is just you're in a very high pressure, high – you're working with a very small group of people all of a sudden and you're together all the time and you're talking about things together all the time. And so there's not – I don't know how to describe it. It's just a challenge. It's a very different people dynamic than when you're sitting in a meeting and you know you're going to have another status meeting about the same thing in two weeks and another one two weeks after that. And that's the only time you're going to see these people and they're going to ask for these little updates. You know, here it's like every day, you know, and, or every hour. Like, well, where are we with this now? Well, 30 minutes ago when you asked me last time. <laughs> so I think I don't know, there's lots and we could go on for hours, but there's three. Why do I do it? I actually love the ambiguity. I love almost a lot of my jobs have been new jobs that didn't exist before in the organization that I joined. And so I like that. I like figuring it out. I like mapping the territory, so to speak. And whether that's enterprise, you know, large company like Amazon, where I've, you know, been in several of those or a brand new startup, you know, with seed funding or pre-seed funding and figuring out what the hell are we doing here? Yeah. So I'll try to add something new because I agree with all those things. Definitely pressure, but another to layer on to that, the type of pressure you have everyone, but especially the founders, the folks at the executive level, you've got everything on the line. I mean, Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you, your investors are, are counting on you. Your founders are counting on you. Your, the employees, like that is a kind of pressure that is different than the pressure of working someplace like an ad agency or Amazon where you're expected to do a lot all the time. This is exponentially more, I'd say. Also, not being able to do the things that I know we should be doing. <laughs> we'll get to that. User research being one of them. And it's not always because we just don't have time. Sometimes it's, they're not there. <laughs> There's a whole lot of reasons why it's really difficult to get that done. And having to do things that you are not an expert in, while that can be growing opportunity, which I do enjoy. It means that I'm spending three times as long doing something I'm not an expert at and not getting to do some of the other things that I am an expert at, which also need to get done. So you're prioritizing literally daily. But why I do it is because the potential is amazing. Like number one, personally, I have a lot of impact all three startups I've been at, I had a lot to say about what the customer experience ended up being. It's also a lot of pressure, but <laughs> but that's what we want as designers. We want our products to be user-centered. And so I have an opportunity to really do that more so than when you have three layers of VPs above you. 
So let's move on to, I think that sort of covers many of the general (laughs) issues, you know, difficulties of being at a startup. What I want to make sure we are giving you all here is techniques that you can take away and learn from. So how to be successful if UX is, I mean, if a startup is where you have chosen or decide to go to. So that first topic, I believe, right, was user research. How do we get user research done? We have a number of problems. Sometimes we don't have the users. Sometimes, and you can find proxy for user. Sometimes we don't, we're making hypotheses about who the user is. And if you do user research with the wrong proxy, there's a chance that your data is going to be really completely off, right? Definitely. I think to that point, it goes back to something Philip was saying earlier, which is, you know, if you're interviewing a small group of people, your sample size is really small. So a couple of wrong answers could throw things off significantly and have you chasing the wrong thing. Or you, you could be building a custom feature. Say you're on a SaaS platform, software as a service, and you're trying to build something that addresses a broad customer groups issue and problem and then you have one really loud customer that's like I want you to build this feature and you could end up on a wild goose chase where you're making one person really really happy but sabotaging your startup so it's important to try and get diverse set of opinions even from one technique I've used is to get opinions from people who aren't necessarily my customer today, but match the profile of someone I want to be in the future. So I'll build out a user persona and say, maybe that user persona doesn't map to our current customer set, but you want to run to where the ball will be, not where it is right now, right? So try to find people who match that profile, whether it's just sharking around on LinkedIn and then reaching out and saying, you know, based on the company you're at and your title and your experience, I'm building a tool that I think would be really interesting for you. And I would love to just get your opinion on it. Make sure you don't come across as salesy. Make sure you come across as I'm a product researcher. And a lot of people would love to share their opinion on things, even if they're, they'll never be your customer, if they match that user profile, that'll help you get more pieces of data into your equation. So what one of the things that I've relied on in the absence of being able to do most of us think of as traditional user research is really understanding some of the problem spaces that I'm working in. And so for our product, we have a large component around data intake and and turning that data into a set of actionable items. And so there's, and then we have some things around data representation, and then we have some, there's, there are some interactive elements of the product as well. And so one of the things I'm looking at or that I look at pretty frequently is what are the known ways of doing those that are successful? In other words, when I get to the point, I want to recognize the difference between solving in a way that my customers specifically want, which is one set of questions around user research, and then solving problems that no one has really solved before. And because in the long run, those are really the things that are going to pay off because, and that's really why we're in business over here. I can rely on, I don't mean to be, sound like I'm doing the genius design thing, but I have a lot of experience and I've seen a lot of different things and I know a lot of things that work and I know a lot of things that haven't worked. And so I'm making smart 
smart bets there to try to to make up for the fact that I don't have a lot of customers to go ask. One thing I learned at Amazon that's helpful here is the idea of one-way doors and two-way doors. So when you're making different design decisions, understanding basically, are you painting yourself into a corner or are you leaving room for you to be able to expand and change later on? And so being really careful about what kinds of design decisions you're making in case you need to change them. Some things don't, you know, like, you know, picking a legible font and that has a nice ramp and picking a set of colors that make sense in the world and aren't just like your fruitful ideas of art on the web. You know, those things are like, get used to making some boring choices because they're safe and focus on the things that you know really need to be explored. Oh, so it sounds like you're talking about we have to make priorities all the time, really hard choices all the time. And that's a really effective technique to prioritize where you're going to put your research effort. It's one reason why I think it, it makes it's much better to have experienced UX professionals in startups because it sort of, there's just a few less mistakes that you can make, you know, like we're all making mistakes all the time. But if you've already been designing and you already have, you know, interviewed thousands of people, so you have a pretty good sense of how people use things, there are some mistakes that you can avoid just because you're experienced. So you can prioritize in that. Another thing that people often ask me about, and it's not specific to startups, but it's definitely an issue at most startups, which is just the lack of, well, you have to be lean, leaner than lean. And often the people who are doing the research don't necessarily have experience doing research. So, you know, there's questions, am I doing it the right way? You know, can I, you have to go out, you have to do guerrilla research. I do, I'm a firm believer that some research almost always is better than none, even if it's executed less than perfectly. If your intent is to truly find information and not to validate something you want to validate. Any other thoughts on research? Yeah. One other thing that triggered in my mind, understand the research that you need. So the idea that I'm getting at is there are a lot of different kinds of user research. There are a lot of different methodologies and some of them are more appropriate in certain situations than others. I think we probably all would agree with that. So understanding which ones are going to get you the most benefit is key. What I mean by that is like, I, so we have some iconography on our site, which isn't surprising. I'm not going to spend a lot of time right now worrying about how, what kind of emotional rapport my users might form with the iconography. It's not that I don't care about that. It's just that's not going to, as uh, Lee was pointing out, earn us a paycheck over the next six months. What's going to earn us a paycheck is a set of features that are important to our clients and a set of features that enable us to get the right kind of data collected that we need. And so what I'm looking at is like, how do I create the demand for that data flow in my clients by making, by helping them understand what they want feature-wise and how do I collect that data? I'm going to worry about you know, typography and like, I want those to be the basics, right? And so understanding that when you're going to do some user research, 
being really precise about what questions you're trying to answer and what methods are you're going to employ to get those. Mm-hmm. Not thinking, well, you know, all good user research starts with ethnography, so I better go out and you know do a six month study on. <laughs> so. yeah. Your startup will be over by then. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think you have to do everything that you do, research and design, mm-hmm. daily based on your current top objectives for the company. Yeah. And one thing I would say is like don't spend a lot of time like if you can use something that already exists, reuse it. Like he was saying, focus on the big interesting juicy problems you're trying to solve. Like you shouldn't be spending time designing what do drop downs look like on our site. Like forget that. Use something people know already. They'll have a better user experience anyway. Instead, make sure you start with the problem you think the problem is something, but it might be something else. So make sure you're practicing like the five whys. Somebody says, oh, you know, my problem is when I click this button, it doesn't give me second option for X, which is what I, the feature I want you to build. And you say, why? And I'm like, well, it's because I'm using this feature to achieve Y. Oh, that's a different feature. So why aren't you using the different feature? Oh, well, that has these constraints. And so the thing you thought you were solving was actually a workaround for something else. And you should be asking why, 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 and digging in until you get to the real problem at the heart of it. And that's where the interesting design problems are. Not that we don't love beautiful things, of course, but we're talking about the user experience. So what you really have to make sure you understand is the problem. And that has a lot to do with something else that people were interested in knowing about is how to get the rest of the team on board with UX and to make that a priority. Part of that is putting those practices into place of asking, are we asking the right problem? Asking the right questions. Yeah. Yeah. Are we asking the right questions? Are we solving the right? Do we know what the problem is? What is the problem we are trying to solve here? And is the problem even a problem? And is there a market attached to that problem? And keep pushing that. You should feel free to ask that question in any conversation that you have with an engineer, with a PM. If you are a PM, you should be asking that question as well. Same with if you're a developer, ask your team. That's a great point is ask your team, like, make sure you understand the assumptions that the founders are working with because they might be solving a problem that they understand based on their experience, but they might be two or three people. And so it's your job to make sure that there's more than two or three people having that problem and the solution is matching their vision. I'll add to that five W's and the H. And then what problem are we solving? What does success need to look like now and later? Oh, so that is almost related to what will come next, which is how do you measure effectiveness of UX? Yes. And so starting the discussion, I think this is maybe for me, it's been one of the most key discussions to have with the team at Pulse Labs is what does it mean to be successful? We can be talking about a few weeks from now or a few months from now. And this is a very different kind of discussion than if you've worked at a large company or a company with an established product where you might be like, well, our 2020 goals are blah, blah, blah. Like in 2020, we will be out of money if we haven't made money in 2019 or even 2018. And so we have to think about what does it mean for us to be successful at, you know, first, like getting to revenue, period, going from zero to something and then getting to sustainability and then maybe starting to think about 
profitability and return on investment and stuff. And so what does success look like or what does it need to look like is usually it brings up a lot of really interesting discussion points that may cause you to reframe the problem. It may cause you to reevaluate the approaches that you're taking to get there. So Cassie, how are you measuring effectiveness of your UX efforts? Well, one of the things that we do is try to look at it both quantitatively and qualitatively. So you can ask people how they feel about things, and that's an important piece of the puzzle. But people lie. People tell you what they want, what they think you want to hear. So it's also important to take a quantitative look at that, like actually have analytics saying, which features are people using? Which features are they not using? How much time are they spending on things? If they're spending a lot of time on this feature, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Like this is taking them too much time and look into those numbers. There's definitely a mix though. There's a human element as well. If you can get FaceTime with them, people want to be heard and they appreciate when you listen and they love working with startups where you can be like, so you're telling me this button is confusing because it's worded kind of funnily, you know, maybe I didn't really think that through when I first put that in there. Dang, they've got a good point. And then you come back next week and you're like, hey, Sarah, thanks for your feedback. I changed the button. The button says the thing that makes sense now. And they're like, what? You just blew my mind. This software changed because of my feedback. And that is a very rewarding loop. So if you can get people to interact with you as and come at it from a very humble I don't know what I don't know kind of way and really open your heart to the fact that this may all be wrong and I would just want to listen to you. Like that goes a long, long way because they're really giving you feedback that's gold. So one of the other things that we do is, you know, across our customers, and we don't have a ton of customers yet. We're still a seed stage startup. But one of the things I always keep an eye on is kind of have a, you know, this is coming from a B2B perspective. Our customers are not individuals, they're enterprises. But I try to have a dashboard, if you will, of where everybody is. Like, are they happy? Are they sad? Are they neutral? When was the last time I checked in with them? Are we getting a lot of support issues from them? If you're not tied into support, you're missing out on a huge funnel of delicious information for design because that's where people are saying, I'm confused, I'm lost, I'm stuck, this is broken, all important things to pay attention to. So for example, we did a three-month pilot at Cedars-Sinai and tracked all the issues and categorized them. And before the end of the pilot, I realized that 50% of the issues were coming in because of two areas. So we fixed those two areas and shipped features that would allow people to do these things by themselves in the system. It was much more turnkey. And then immediately half of the support tickets went away. So now Devs that were spending time on support tickets are building me more features <laughs> and the customers are happier. So it's a win-win thing, but you have to track everything because you can't improve what you don't track. And that comes back to measuring. Yes. You have to be able to measure. There are a lot more questions though about measuring. How do you measure effectiveness of UX? I will plug, there was a webinar that I was in last week that was hosted by UpTop. And I think if you Google UpTop UX challenges, you'll probably find it. <laughs> and we address that specifically. Mm -hmm. It's not that much different from, I mean, it's a problem everywhere, not just a startup. With the complication of a startup being you have fewer customers. Yeah. I don't think 
personally that there's anything more effective at a startup than what Cassie illustrated, which is, can you point regularly to problems being solved? Mm -hmm. You're just, most of us at these early stages, we just don't have the volume to talk about things like you know, conversion rates or things like that. I mean, those might be useful, but in really, if you want to measure progress, it's problem solved. And you can add something, you know, sort of quantitative or qualitative there about how well is the problem solved? Did you, you know, do you get people who say, yeah, okay, yeah, I guess that's what I asked for, but I don't really like it. Or are you getting people, you know, whose minds are blown and saying, wow, I didn't know that you could just change it like that. So by the way, here's 17 things I want you to do. <laughs> also, that goes back to not just being able to say, hey, guys, this is the thing we needed to change in the product based on user feedback and research, blah, 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 but also being able to influence the roadmap and making sure that that actually gets into the queue of stuff that gets shipped to production. So make sure you're injected into that process in as much as design should find support to be a gold mine. Like Design should be a huge resource for everyone at the company who's like, I don't know, what should we do here? We have to talk to Cassie because she knows what the customers need. you know. And it should become very, very evident why they're coming to talk to you. Make sure you evangelize yourself internally because you have to be the champion for the users. You have to make a big noise and a splash if something's going wrong. And, you know, because you're in a startup, there's a good chance you'll be involved in product management or something that starts with the with the letters P and M. So if you have the opportunity to get involved in triaging issues so that you can put a weight next to each of these issues and say, based on my research and here's the facts to back it up, these are the things we need to hit in the correct priority. That can really help. One of the, again, a tactical thing I did that helped my team understand why we were doing what we were doing is I made a matrices of one axis was how frequently will users encounter this issue and the other axis was how painful would it be when they do encounter it and then based on that chart there was a severity and a weight for issues. So they knew when I gave something in Jira or GitLab or whatever tool you're using a weight of seven, it wasn't just Cassie felt like a seven that day, it was this is the user feedback we have and the likelihood that people will run into this issue and how painful it will be for them. And that allowed us to really prioritize and hit the most important things first. Yeah, that severity and frequency is a tool that actually now a bunch of other folks on our team are starting to use. It's a very, very helpful tool. And also, I want to say one more thing about that, which is you alluded to, but make sure that you are aligning all of your recommendations to the business objective, because otherwise it just sounds like you're trying to make things look pretty or whatever, right? It's can, design can come across as being inconsequential. You need to show. Absolutely. You have to talk about what's the business objective that this is going to affect. You should be out in front saying, I'm not here to make this pretty. I'm here to make this functional and fast and reliable. And then maybe we'll talk about pretty. And <laughs> something people want to use, right? Yeah. Well, and, and that's, so one of the things that you can do there is, is practice coming up with or develop a practice of coming up with alternatives and their relative positive impact. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we spend three days working on this, we can get to this. If we spend two weeks working on this, we can get to this. And so understanding that, 
there are no finite rules about good and bad. It can sort of make the assumption that everything you're trying to do is good. So what level of good are you trying to produce for what reason in what time? And don't go for perfect. If you're not embarrassed by what you're shipping, you've waited too late to ship. <laughs> yeah. yeah, better done than perfect. I'm super proud of the work I have done so far. And I would never, I don't think I would ever put it up as a portfolio piece. You know, it just is not, it's, you're going to look, someone would look at it and say, oh, but that's okay because my startup yeah. is doing what it needs to do. Yeah. And I, although we've run out of time, we are going to have questions. There's one thing that came up quite a bit. Well, there are two things related to career. How is this going to affect my career and transitioning into UX, which we didn't get to? We also didn't get to developing a UX process, which is super important. So maybe that'll be, you know, the next one. But just very quickly, let's take five minutes to talk about career. When is it a good time in your career? Like, does it matter? And how do you feel it has affected your career? I personally was already in a leadership role when I did my first startup. I'm not sure I would have gotten nearly as much out of it if I had been earlier in my career. Transitioning, the second part of that, transitioning into a startup is just like transitioning from an ad agency to a mega corporation or something like that. It's difficult. But what are your thoughts on career in UX? How is it affected? So the first thought I have is you really need to have a good idea of what you want your career to be. If you are after, say, the UX management track, startup may not be a great idea for you at, you know, being at least at the early stage. You know, maybe you come in when there's an established product and there's a couple of designers and you're going to help grow that startup from, you know, like I, one of the startups I joined was 30 odd people and I helped grow from 30 to over 60, not, not UX people, but you know, just that was the arc of the product. And so, and at that time in my career, I was focused on really learning how to grow teams and learning how to manage teams in evolving situations. I've also just, I've come in and taken over management of larger teams and changed how it worked and what tools they used. So first, just having a really clear idea of what you're looking for in your career at any at the moment that you're thinking about this. One of the and then knowing you know what you're good at and what you want to do on a day to day basis. Like you know, like I said, I really love ambiguity and I love making something where there hasn't been anything before. The main thing career wise is to produce good work, produce work that tells a story clearly and be able to tell that story, and then. You know, when you find other opportunities and you're able to tell that story, people will know that you, you can do the work that they're interested in you doing for them. I had the opposite experience of you guys. So this is a good panel. I started at the bottom and didn't know what I wanted to do or what I was good at. And in fact, I didn't even know I was interested in startups. But somebody in a startup that was taking off needed a lot of help. And I thought, I can do this. If I don't try this now, when in my life am I going to take this crazy plunge? So I joined a startup running the support team and being like a community manager. And I built out that team and that was a great experience. But I realized in dealing with these support issues, and this is why I have a fondness for tracking support issues, I was putting a lot of band-aids on things. My team was putting a lot of band-aids on things. It was bad UX wounds that we were patching up. And I thought, gosh, I would rather be working on preventative care. So that's the way I think about UX. And when that startup got acquired, I had been working with my mentors at that company to shift into product. 
and secret here. They just told the acquiring company, oh, she's a product person. And so <laughs> I made a shift then into product and I was working. I ended up leaving the company that acquired us after a year. And then I had PM on my resume and I went to be a PM at another startup. And I had, that's when I realized, gosh, I really, I'm a PM. I'm doing a lot of type A process management stuff. But the part I really, really love is still this UX problem, like the solving of the interesting problems and making sure the experience is great. And so I kept leaning into that. And when that company got acquired, I realized I've got this management role now. That's great. But I think I'm climbing up the wrong ladder. And I would rather take a step back than keep climbing up the wrong ladder. So it was by doing that I realized more and more what I loved. I was like the PM with the crazy deep UX opinions that was just annoying the heck out of the UX people. So I was like, I just need to be a UX person. And I switched teams and I went back to being an individual contributor so that I could be strictly UX. And it was fine to take that step backwards because I ended up taking two steps forwards and ended up running that UX team in like six months. And it was totally the right move. Sometimes you just have to reevaluate and be like, am I doing what I love? Is this playing to my skills, to your point? And so as I switched teams and startups and roles and grew and challenged myself, I you know, kept going up this path towards more and more UX. And now I'm a chief product officer and a co-founder at a company. And we started the company with user-centered design, which has given us a huge advantage to the many startups I've worked at in the past where UX was an afterthought. So yeah, sometimes it's not so clear from the beginning. Yeah. So your experience was that because you have so many hats that you wear mm -hmm. at a startup earlier in your career, it actually was a good thing. Absolutely. Don't let lack of hats. experience deter you from joining a startup because you'll get it. You'll yeah. get lots of experience real yeah. quick. Yeah. One of the things you realize when you just join a startup is that most people who are in early stage startups also have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> okay, we're going to open it up to questions. And if anyone has a question, yes, okay. My question is, how do you find a good startup that's aligned with your working styles and a product you're excited about and that you think has a future versus one that is, you know, maybe just someone's harebrained idea that hasn't been fully thought through and doesn't have the right people on board to get it off the ground? That's a great question. Could I take it? <laughs> so um, one of the things I would think about is what level of startup do you want to get into? Because just like he was saying with the levers you could pull and how good do we want to make this product? Like how safe and secure do you want to go with your startup? There's a lot of variables there. Earlier in my career, like Lee, I was at bigger companies and then they got smaller and smaller and riskier and riskier as my expertise grew and my risk tolerance grew. And I think that's a good path because especially if you're earlier in your career, having more mentorship around is helpful and having the stability is nice knowing that the lights are going to stay on, you know. So if you're looking for joining a startup that's like 40 people, 30 people, 20 people, those are to me a good place to start. Earlier than that, it's pretty early. So I think my first startup, I was like 20, employee 20, then like 13, then like two. So one thing you could do if you're looking for a bigger startup is look at jobs on AngelList, look at Techstars companies coming out of your city because they, you know, Techstars companies are 
vetted already and you know they've got at least a little funding coming from somewhere and generally they have a lot of good network momentum. I'm biased because we did Techstars. But yeah, check out Techstars cohorts, check out AngelList. And also regarding culture, make sure when you go into the interview, you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you, right? You're going to devote a lot of your time and energy to these people. Make sure you have an understanding of what they're like as people, like do their values align with you? And there's ways you can tell, you know, show up early for the interview and see how people are treated in the when you're sitting there waiting and see how stressed they look. <laughs> yeah, I want to reinforce the networking aspect of that. The Seattle startup scene has changed amazingly over the past five years. Mm-hmm. And so there are, I think we've moved in this area from like, being, you know, finding a random person in a meetup somewhere to there are really, there are startup related events happening all the time. And so Techstars, WeWork is investing, nurturing startups, the Riveter in Capitol Hill. So find those places where people who are interested in startups are meeting and then go and talk to them and ask them about, you know, get involved in what's going on and do it with a mindset of helping build companies, helping build products, have those conversations, um, not necessarily I'm looking for a UX job conversations. Yeah. One time somebody said to me, build the network you want in three years. And I think that's so smart. So even if you're just considering, I might do a startup someday, start going to those events. Very good advice. I will mention, if you have a question and you didn't get a chance to ask it, my Twitter is at uxcake underscore, or you can email, just go to uxcake.co and, you know, contact. And if you have questions for me or for either Philip or Cassie, I can pass them on and we would love to answer your questions. So I want to thank you all so much for coming. I hope that you got something out of this. I think there was a lot of really wise advice given this evening. Thanks to Cassie and Philip for joining me tonight on UX Cake. Thank you for having us. A lot of fun. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this episode. I'm always inspired by your feedback, so please keep connecting with us. Twitter, the gram, Facebook, or you can go to uxcake.co where you can sign up on the mailing list. If you're interested in helping this podcast continue, there are a number of ways that you can do that. This podcast is a community effort and it takes a lot of work to keep it going, but it's also a lot of fun. We need help with events social media content, guest management, and more. Not all of these positions have to be in Seattle. So if you are anywhere else in the world, you can also help us. Find out how you could be a part of the UX Cake community. Go to uxcake.co slash join dash us. That's our website. And if you're enjoying the UX Cake podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes or Google Play because that really helps others find it. As always, Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a bite.